is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Well, guess who may be coming back? Could the real Donald Trump be about to get his voice back on Twitter? Billionaire Elon Musk says he will lift the former president's permanent ban if his takeover of the platform goes through. And what's the likely impact of that on politics and social media if Trump is back tweeting again? Is it good for free speech? We'll go in depth. California moving to give people rebates for paying high gas taxes or prices. But could the move just make inflation that much worse? And hypersonic missiles are fired by the Russians on Odessa. We get the latest on the war in Ukraine. We'll also speak with a resident of Kiev who's now moved to the West for the latest on the refugee crisis. The State Retailers Association announcing new moves to fight organized criminal gangs robbing from stores. And a top infectious disease expert talks with us about COVID in his family while he stays healthy. But we start with Elon Musk talking at a Financial Times conference earlier today. Banning Trump from Twitter didn't end Trump's voice. It will amplify it among the right. And this is why it is morally wrong and flat out stupid. Joining us now, Daryl West, Director of Government Studies at the Brookings Institution, Senior Fellow at the Center for Technology Innovation. Uh, Daryl, thanks for being with us. So some people are probably cheering the news that Mr. Trump may return to Twitter. Some people are probably hiding under their beds. Which faction is right in this one? I think there are great dangers of Trump coming back onto Twitter because when he was president, Twitter was such a great megaphone for him. Not only did it allow him to communicate with millions of people across the country, but the news media followed his tweets so avidly. And so Trump was able to use Twitter to drive a lot of news coverage. And so that uh, if he comes back onto the platform, the same thing is going to happen. The media will be all over it. Uh, They will amplify his uh, voice. I just think Elon Musk is wrong on this case. Isn't uh, the media still amplifying his voice? So because every time he puts out a statement on his own website, people just screen grab it and put it up and then it gets retweeted anyway. So he's still kind of there. If, if you don't want to see Trump stuff, it's hard to miss sometimes. Well, certainly he will continue to be a presence. Uh, it, uh, probably is a likely uh, 2024 presidential uh, candidate. So uh, we will see a lot more of him then. But I do feel uh, things have been calmer over the last year, at least in terms of social media platforms, compared to when Trump was on uh, Twitter. It's just there was so much polarization and extremism. We have to remember why he got kicked off of Twitter. You know, it was for inciting violence. Uh, that was actually... Uh, against the Twitter terms of service. That's the reason he got a a lifetime uh, ban. Uh, That fact has not changed. And so uh, Musk says that anything that is legal uh, should be allowed to be on a social media platform. But there are lots of things that are obnoxious, outrageous, uh, or that make people feel badly. And so we do need to pay attention to the quality of our civic discourse in this country. I was reading this morning that some of Trump's uh, supporters have urged him or are urging him to not go to Twitter, but to stick with his own. He has his, of course, new social media uh, company, and they are saying that he should stick with that. But I get the sense that you don't think he's going to confine himself to that. I don't think he's going to confine himself to that just because the audience is minuscule compared to uh, Twitter. I mean, Twitter is the megaphone that he loved. He used it uh, quite effectively. Uh, If he can get that platform uh, back, I would be absolutely shocked if Trump uh, turned that uh, 
uh, down because it's just a great way for him to inject his views multiple times every day, which is what he did when he was uh, president. Uh, people uh, hung on his uh, every word. And it really drove a lot of the public conversation, not just uh, the uh, media coverage, uh, in my view, uh, to the detriment of American democracy. You think uh, if he rejoins, he could end up getting banned again if he you know, violates whatever rules? And Elon may change some of the rules, but uh, there will still be some things that you cannot say. So um, is Elon Musk's problem with the permanent ban, you think, rather than just the ability to take people on and off? I think it's more than that. I mean, Musk has a very particular view of freedom of speech on social media platforms. He's basically said anything that is legal should be allowed on these uh, platforms. But that goes against the grain of a lot of recent conversations, a lot of recent decisions. Uh, All the social media platforms now are engaging in what they call content moderation, uh, meaning if someone advocates uh, violence, uh, they take those posts down. If someone engages in hate speech, uh, they take uh, that information down. So there are a lot of things that are perfectly legal that we should not want to tolerate in our public discourse. But Twitter, of course, has had a spotty record when it comes to making profit, but it does rely on advertisers. And might those advertisers want to shy away if Trump returns? That could be a problem, and that will certainly be an interesting uh, new angle to uh, watch in all this. But Musk already has promised his investors that he's going to dramatically improve Twitter's revenue streams and the usage uh, levels. And I think the Trump decision uh, should uh, uh, Musk uh, bid uh, go through is part of that. Like uh, Musk knows that in order to increase uh, the usage levels and uh, draw more revenue, that he needs uh, Trump. Uh, Trump will stimulate a lot of conversation. He will draw a lot of attention uh, to the uh, platform. So I do think it's part of Musk's business model to bring Trump back because he knows, uh, even though there may be some advertisers who object, it will dramatically increase the usage levels of that platform. Daryl West, Director of Governance Studies, Brookings Institution, Senior Fellow, Center for Technology Innovation. Still to come, we go live to Ukraine, latest on displaced families moving west. We'll also talk with a top California infectious disease expert dealing with a COVID outbreak in his own family. Right now, though, inflation is a top concern for people now, including President Biden, who says it is his top priority. Well, here in California, the governor and State lawmakers are working on rebates to compensate people for sky-high pump prices. But could that tax relief make the problem worse? With us is Jared Balzac of the Center for State Tax Policy at the Tax Foundation. Jared, thanks for being with us. So how would it make it worse if it would? Well, thanks for having me. The, the, the challenge that states have right now and that all lawmakers at all levels have is that prices are higher, so people are feeling these constraints. But the problem is, in many ways, there's too much money in the economy. We People have a lot of disposable income right now, and they don't have enough to spend it on. You know, supply chain crisis, uh, productivity changes, uh, but just uh, this infusion of a lot of cash without the productivity changes that are normally associated with a growing economy. So if you infuse even more cash, if you put more money in people's pockets without changing the overall uh, incentive structure for economic growth, Uh, you have more money chasing after the same amount of goods. That's inflationary pretty much by definition. So if you give everybody 400 bucks or under the governor's plan, I think if you've got two cars, then uh, 800, that's just a lot of extra money. That's another stimulus check going into the uh, into the into the bank accounts. 
It essentially is, and a kind of curiously targeted one, one that benefits uh, owners of cars, uh, even though obviously everyone is feeling the pinch uh, when they are purchasing a wide range of goods. And states are in this weird position because their neighbors are thinking about doing things like this. And if you don't do it and your neighbor does, some of that inflation you know, that inflationary effect spills over to you and your residents aren't getting the benefit. Uh, but every state doing this, which is the route we seem to be going down, uh, for some sort of relief like this, it's making the problem worse. So what's the solution? Well, if states have the capacity to make structural reforms to their tax code, this is a good time for that. States have extremely large reserves right now, uh, significant surpluses. They also have pretty solid revenue projections. Now, hold that a little in um, attention with the fact that right now uh, there are some warning signs blinking in the economy, certainly in the stock market, but state revenue forecasts are really good for coming years. If states want to offer a lesser amount of relief for a longer period of time, we can actually try to induce the investment and the productivity gains that help make this work. If you just put money in people's pockets, then uh, you know, you're not changing the economic outlook. If you're making it better for investment, better for economic growth, then yes, people have more money, but it's also able to purchase something. You start to, start to solve that inflationary uh, challenge. What about changing the gas taxes or putting moratoriums on them? Some states are doing this. Up in Sacramento, they say, the Democrats at least, are saying, no, because we need that money for the roads and for that kind of funding. Republicans have been trying to do something like that. It's not a very well-targeted way to provide relief. Uh, One, again, it's only affecting some people. Gas prices skyrocketed both due to inflation and the crisis in Ukraine. But you can separate those out. And inflation's hitting all kinds of goods, not just gasoline. So it's targeted only at this one narrow area. It also does sever this important link. The gas tax is about as close as you get in taxation to a user pay system. You really are paying, at least in rough proportion, to the wear and tear you put on roads and paying for the maintenance of those roads. If you're going to provide relief, I know that that's the big marquee number we see everywhere and that politicians like the idea of reducing that gas price, but that's not the best way to provide relief because, again, it's a user fee. Uh, you know, it's better to find some other way to provide relief if lawmakers are dedicated to doing so. Jared Walzak, Center for State Tax Policy at the Tax Foundation. Coming up, the state's uh, retailers work on ways to combat store attacks by mobs of criminals and a whole lot of shaking on Mars that has just seen its biggest recorded earthquake. Right now, though, the war in Ukraine. Joining us from London, CBS News reporter Felix Leitz, who was reporting from Moscow until just after the war broke out. Felix, thanks for being here. Let's start with what um, some of our intelligence officials here in the U.S. are saying, that they believe uh, Putin's likely to become more unpredictable and more escalatory because our assessment of what he's got, his military capability, it doesn't match what he can actually do, his ambitions. Uh, So that's going to make him lash out. Yeah, sure. I think that's a fairly sort of uh, accurate interpretation. You know, what we've seen sort of since the start of this war is really sort of, you know, as the Russian army has run into harder and harder sort of obstacles in terms of, you know, field, uh, you know, actually fighting and prosecuting this war, uh, we've seen sort of Putin getting deeper sort of into his ideological rut. You know, we've seen him, if anything, just constantly demonstrate more, you know, strong commitment to, to, to this task. You know, uh, yesterday we saw him sort of uh, giving a speech at Victory Day. That sort of it's the main event of the Russian calendar when sort of Russia commemorates its victory over Nazi Germany in 1945. You know, he talked at length, sort of in very much a way, a very pointed way, justifying the war and sort of 
signaling, I think, very clearly that there's no sort of uh, room for him to back down or even perhaps to sort of soften his objectives in Ukraine right now. I'm noticing a report that Belarus is moving its uh, forces, special forces, to the border with Ukraine. Uh, does that have any particular significance? Well, you know, it's hard to say. I think, you know, Belarus is sort of a, a party to this war, but it's a very subordinate party to Russia. You know, we believe or, you know, it's it's widely sort of thought that sort of uh, the Russians have been trying to force the Belarusian army into taking a more active part of the war. But frankly, you know, uh, the Belarusian army is not a sort of a huge sort of military uh, factor here. You know, I certainly think, given the way the Russian army is performed against the Ukrainians, it seems unlikely that the much weaker and less resourced Belarusian army would make a real dent there. So I wouldn't sort of uh, attribute too much importance to this, I think. There were some strikes in Odessa overnight, um, shopping yep. malls, another so civilian kind of targets, and apparently hypersonic missiles were used, which doesn't make a lot of sense to, to some of the military analysts out there, because usually they happen so fast, that's what they're supposed to be doing, so they evade you know, your countermeasures. So you would strike a military base with those, not like a civilian target, but they're apparently using them anyway. Yeah, you know, it's 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 hard to sort of uh, fathom what exactly the Russians are doing there. You know, if you want to talk from the perspective of military strategy, maybe they're trying to, you know, uh, keep their options open, you know, try and pin some Ukrainian troops in Odessa, a city that, you know, was a real major sort of uh, target for the Russian forces, but has really, I think, slipped out of their grasp. I don't think there's any serious chance they'll be threatening that third city of Ukraine Black Sea anytime soon. You know, they're almost trying to, I think, remind the Ukrainians that this war is not won. You know, you'll see the Ukrainian side increasingly thinking they can actually, you know, conventionally defeat the Russians on the on the battlefield, which is, you know, an extraordinary sort of turnaround from two months ago. And sort of this, you know, these kind of terror strikes, as it were, they're almost sort of the Russian side reminding the Ukrainians that, you know, they're not, not everything can go their way and that Russia does retain, you know, substantial and very damaging ways of striking back when it needs to. I mean, I know that uh, independent reporting is pretty much shut down in Russia. Maybe it has shut down totally in Russia. But is there any way of knowing to what degree the average Russian is buying Putin's line about how this is really uh, an effort to, to, to help the motherland uh, against uh, you know, Nazis in Ukraine, which, of course, is ridiculous. But, but is there any way to gauge how the average Russian is buying all this or not buying all this? Well, you know, it's it's difficult, right? You know, um, opinion polling is unreliable in a regime as authoritarian as Russia's. But I think, you know, anecdotal impressions would say, you know, the one may, may not uh, enjoy sort of an absolute overwhelming majority of support, but it is fairly widely supported. You've got to remember this is, you know, a war situation in Russia. Uh, you know, and I think in any country, you know, the impulse to sort of stand behind one's country in a crisis in a time of war is pretty strong. So, you know, I wouldn't underestimate the, the extent to which it, it retains support. You've also got to remember that the, uh, the monopoly, really, of the state media, of the Kremlin-controlled media, especially the TV in Russia, is incredibly strong. And in many ways, almost resembles a sort of parallel reality, you know, where Ukraine is sort of evil and, and, and run by Nazis and sort of the West is stoking conflict in Eastern Europe. And so you've got to remember that sort of most Russians live in a very different sort of information environment to us in the West. So there are real, real, real difficulties there with uh, sort of uh, trying to fathom, I guess, what the Russians might be thinking. Do you hear anything from people you know that are still there about how the economy is? I mean, Jenny Yellen out today saying they're very clearly in a recession. I mean, prices are sky high. Well, yeah, you know, even the uh, the, the economy minister of Russia uh, prognoses, I think, a 9% contraction in 
Russian economy uh, in sort of the coming weeks. So, you know, this is a, or in the next year, I should say. So this is a, you know, a really big recession they're going to fall into. I think, you know, in terms of uh, sort of the impacts, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a lagging indicator, right? You know, uh, sanctions kind of have their hit, but they, they have a hit slightly later down the line when sort of supply chains start uh, coming undone. You'll expect to see very, very high inflation, of course, you know, especially high because, you know, all the world's in an inflationary crisis at the moment, and in Russia, it would be particularly bad. What you do hear of, I think, is sort of layoffs in sort of certain manufacturing sectors. You know, uh, the French car company Renault pulled out of Russia quite recently, and sort of that, you know, you hear of people who are really suffering from that, you know, families with children who, you know, lose their main income from that. So I think there is a lot of economic pain in Russia. But at the same time, I'm not necessarily sure that sort of converts into people blaming the Kremlin. Uh, they rather blame sort of the West or sort of, you know, inter- external enemies much more than they blame the Kremlin. So, you know, I think sanctions don't necessarily work in the way people sort of might think they do, even if, you know, the, the initial imposition surely is justified in the circumstance. CBS News reporter Felix Lights uh, was reporting in Moscow before uh, the war broke out. Millions of ordinary Ukrainians have had to move west. Joining us now is one of them, Kiev resident Alexander. Alexander, thank you for taking the the time to uh, talk with us. Where roughly are you in Ukraine now, and is it considered relatively safe? Um, Hello. Uh, Yes, uh, since the very first day of the war, I've moved to the west of the Ukraine, and the frequency of the missile attacks is significantly lower than in the east part of Ukraine. So you can call it safer, but they can reach any part of Ukraine with their missiles right now. Right. It's all relative because they can still get there. What is it like in a, in a terms of a, a daily life or, or daily movements for people? Because you're not the only one that's gone west and we still see people right moving in that direction. Yeah, it's like 7 million of people have moved from their houses. Uh, it's like one-fifth like one-sixth portion of people in Ukraine. So you see towns and cities overcrowded with people. Right now it's kind of stabilized because it was the first month, let's say, which was very dynamic in terms of moving people from east to the west and further to the European Union countries. But uh, you will experience a shortage of flats to to rent and... uh, Right now, it is also um, a gasoline crisis because of the hits to the factories. So, um, like, literally every field of life is being under some certain pressure and stress. We mentioned at the very top, you are uh, originally, I guess, from Kiev, or at least you lived in Kiev before you made a move to the western portion of the country. What did you actually do for a living in Kiev? What are you doing now? How has this disrupted your own life? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I have my own agency, which is uh, which is specified in urban planning. And uh, on the 24th of February, actually, all my projects have stopped. And uh, so, like, we, we have frozen our business for, I don't know, how long. And uh, we moved, like, all westwards. And after a while, we restarted our activity in a non-profit format, actually raising funds from the, our partners from abroad, uh, bringing different experts together, working on, on the post-war recovery during the war. What does some of that look like? Where does that money go and, and what do you do with it? 
Uh, it's basically it's analysis we, we raised from such organizations such as uh, UN structures like UNDP, and we also raised it from R&D funds from various universities in the UK and Switzerland. And basically, we look on a short-term, medium-term, and long-term perspective of the recovery, because like first type of recovery is the infrastructure of returning people back, but afterwards, it's about building something really better than that used to be before the war. What's your sense of how things are going? It's hard to say. There are ups and downs, and um, I think we're in a long game right now, and it won't end up very soon because what we feel now is that Russia is changing their strategy from like certain blitzkrieg they tried to make it to, to the 9th of May to long and exhausting war where they will gain power out of nowhere, I know. How are you holding up, knowing that this looks to be far from over and having that pressure you were talking about earlier, every day the stress affecting at least some part or every part of life is linked to the war now? Yeah, sure. Like, my family right now is, is in Berlin, like my wife and my, my kid, because uh, they prefer to be more safe, and I think that for that moment it was a good idea, so right now we're like kind of separated. Um, I live in a city that I used to live before, but the other people, they're totally new to these circumstances. So it's literally every every part of life being under stress and from one side. But from the other side, the human is a very interesting being that can get used to anything. But uh, this is something very hard to get used to. So like uh, our horizon of planning is like a few days, maximum a week, but not more. Do you see yourself at some point moving out of Ukraine? Uh, not possible because of the martial law. The no, I know. But, but I mean, at some point, if they were to lift that or modify it, would you prefer to stay uh, and bring your family back? Or would you prefer to then join them? Yeah, I'd rather stay. I see my future here. Alexander there. Used to live in Kiev, further to the west now. Family out of the country uh, in Berlin doing what he can to help with the uh, rebuilding efforts when they happen. Alexander, thank you for, for speaking to us. We wish you the best. You may remember the uh, recent spate of frightening store robberies across the state with groups of criminals breaking in, grabbing everything in sight. Well, now retailers are kind of refining their response. Rachel Michelin, president and CEO of the California Retailers Association, is with us. So what are you guys doing and how can you stop this when, you know, a dozen people rush into a store and start smashing stuff? Yeah, it's a, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a growing problem. And, and unfortunately, we're seeing the level of violence increase within the state of California. And so we're trying to do everything we can to stop this. It's important to protect our employees and our customers and the communities that we operate in. So we just made an announcement. We are collaborating with the California Organized Retail Crime Association. Uh, we're working through that arm to really educate, particularly policymakers, law enforcement, district attorneys, other stakeholders, so that we can all get on the same page. Um, there's a lot of finger pointing when it comes to this issue, and we really need to focus on what the solutions are. We need to move forward with those solutions. And candidly, I think everyone on this issue needs to give a little so that we can have safe communities and shopping establishments throughout the state. Okay, so let's do that. Now, uh, let's focus on some of the solutions. What are they? You know, I think there's a couple of things. One is, um, candidly, there needs to be consequences for the behavior. 
uh, what we are seeing more and more is repeat offenders who go in and they're constantly stealing. They're going in, they're using violence and smashing grabs, and then they turn around, they're cited, then they're not prosecuted. And what we're seeing is we need to have consequences. People need to know it's illegal to steal. It's illegal to go in and terrorize employees and customers through violence and smash and grabs. And they're going to have to spend some time in jail. That's a difficult conversation. Um, some people don't want to have that, but it needs to happen because until we are willing to recognize that there needs to be consequences, I don't see, so I don't see an end to this happening throughout the state. Do you think the consequences are high enough in L.A. County? I mean, could the DA be doing more? Uh, I, I do think the DA could be doing more. I do not think there are consequences right now for committing crimes, particularly retail theft in Los Angeles. And I think more needs to be done. But, you know, candidly, it's going to take consumers. It's going to take voters to, to stand up and say enough is enough. You know, we can do everything we can from a retail perspective. But, you know, these are elected officials not just the district attorney, but members of the board of supervisors, local elected, city council, uh, the mayor, those are elected and they're accountable to the voters. And I think voters need to decide what kind of Los Angeles do they want to live in? One where it's, it seems to be getting out of control or one is where people who commit crimes are being held accountable and they're going to have to you know, deal with the consequences of that behavior. You ticked off a number of uh, agencies, but not uh, police. Uh, are, LA, are the LAPD, sheriff's departments, are they doing enough? You know, I, we get we hear a lot from retailers that unfortunately they'll call LAPD or sheriff and, and no one shows up. And, and part of it is part of that finger pointing where folks will say, well, we're not going to show up. We're not going to write a report because we know the district attorney is not going to prosecute you know, and, and that's where it comes down to. We all have to sit around a table and figure out solutions. You know, everyone has to be willing to, to do a little bit more to find solutions to this problem. And um, we have to have those conversations. We're ready and willing to do that with whoever wants to sit down and have that conversation because we want to see an end to this rampant retail theft throughout the state. So I think everyone has a little responsibility, including retailers. You but know, but I, I want to be everything we can. But I want to be clear on one thing you just said, Rachel. Are, are you saying that you're hearing from some storekeepers, retailers that what they've had robberies and they call the, the police and the police don't come? In some cases, yes, we are hearing that from our member companies because they're overworked. There's a lot of things going on. And candidly, when there are not going to be consequences, when someone is cited and released, and not going to be prosecuted for their crimes, you know, that, that, that takes its toll. And that's where we need retailers to call more often, which we're working on our end to get retailers to call and make sure that law enforcement is, is called to come out to these cases. And in, in many cases, we need law enforcement to work with us to make that happen. And we need district attorneys who are going to prosecute the crimes. What can you do from the retailer perspective? Because you've mentioned that a couple of times. I come back to that idea of even if you up security, but, you know, six guys run in, you can't get them all. And not everybody's Nordstrom, right? You could be a smaller shop, a jewelry store or something. Correct. I mean, I just talked to a jewelry store owner earlier today in Los Angeles who's been hit a number of times with these smash and grabs. So we're doing a number of things. Number one is we're continuing to take the narrative to elected officials. We're taking the narrative of the governor's office to the legislature, to elected officials across the state. I'm talking with the police chiefs association, the district attorneys association, criminal justice groups. We are trying to talk with everyone we can to find um, solutions to this. And there isn't one silver bullet that's going to solve this problem. 
but we're continuing to work on it. We're not giving up. This is a marathon, not a sprint. We want to make sure that our stores are safe places for our employees to work. They're safe places for our customers to shop and that our communities are safe that we invest in. Um, But I continue to talk to whoever will listen to me that we have to work together. We have to put our differences aside and and put forward the idea that we have to have safe communities and neighborhoods to to work and live in. Okay, so Rachel, uh, we have lots of people from LAPD, Sheriff's Department, DA's office, I'm sure, that listen to us, listen to the show. So here's your opportunity. Give them a direct message. What do you want to tell them? I want to tell them, let's sit down. Let's figure out solutions. We are ready to work with anyone and everyone, but particularly with law enforcement and district attorneys on finding ways to combat retail theft and and the growing level of violence that we're seeing on retail theft. Um, We want to work together on solutions that are able to work. You know, not every solution results in putting someone in jail. Some of these folks need help. They need diversion programs. We see a level of drug addiction, homelessness. We need to find solutions to that. But we have to have the conversation. And and that means we have to put some of our differences aside and work together collectively to find a strategy that's going to work. And that's, you know, politically can get through in many of the different um, diversity of the state of California. And we're willing to do that. And I'm willing to talk with anyone who wants to have that conversation. Rachel Michelin, President, CEO of the California Retailers Association. Rachel, thanks. Growing concerns over relapse cases of COVID, people who just can't seem to shake it. There's also worry about the latest uh, highly transmissible strains. Joining us again now is Dr. Robert Rockner, professor and chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Doctor, thanks for coming back. So uh, your family, your wife has COVID now, is that right? That is correct. And you're, you don't? Uh, as of as of today, I feel fine and my test is negative and I was exposed to her maybe three days ago, two to three days ago. So I'm not out of the woods, but I may be one of those 50 or 60 percent of close co- household contacts that doesn't get it. So people are, are endlessly sort of amused, bemused, whatever you want to call it, about those kinds of situations where you hear, you know, the, the husband has it, the wife doesn't, the wife has it, the kids don't. Why does that happen? Does anyone actually know? Well, there was an amazing study done in the UK. I don't think we could get away with this here, where they actually took droplets of COVID, uh, uh, COVID drops and put it in people's noses, volunteers. A challenge study, that, is that it? Right? A challenge I, study. I would not volunteer for that one, but half of the people got it and half of the people did not. So uh, we all have different levels of immunity. Some of this is probably just luck. I think if I manage to dodge it, it will be partly because I'm fully vaccinated and boosted and also lucky. Uh, some of it is luck and some of it we just don't understand. I imagine your wife is pretty careful. I mean, she's married to you, so she hears about how to be careful all the time. And uh, <laughs> how did this uh, How did this happen? Do you think, does she think? And it's. I'm wondering because we have, you know, all these sons and, and daughters of now Omicron, and each one seems to be more transmissible than the last. So everyone's doing their risk assessments, right? Like they're right. told to, but... Risk assessments for some people aren't changing. They're doing what they deemed safe before, but they're still catching the virus now. Yep, exactly. So, yeah, both she and I have been incredibly careful for a couple of years, but I think we've come to a a state where it's probably not going to get that much better than it is now over the next couple of years. So we all have to kind of negotiate what level of risk we're comfortable with. And so in this case, she's a journalist and, and a writer. She was invited us to teach at a writer's workshop in, in, in Santa Fe. 
Uh, it was canceled for the last two years. They decided to have it. She wanted to do it. She decided to go. She wore a mask during most of the conference inside, but they did have meals together inside. Everybody was vaccinated, but they didn't do testing uh, every day. And it turns out to have been a super spreader event where about a third of the people who attended got it. So she's kicking herself a little bit, but I think one of those, you know, it, it's very tough. We None of us can and should sit under the kitchen table like we were in March 2020. We're all going to be out there taking some risks. And this one, unfortunately, uh, you know, led to COVID. It's very different now than if she'd gotten it a year ago. She's fully vaccinated. She's boosted. She started taking Paxlovid. She's already feeling better. The chances she's going to get super sick and die are essentially zero, which is not would not have been true a year and a half ago. So I think we're all trying to come to terms with this and make what feel like reasonable decisions for us. Okay, but then there's this, uh, like your wife, and we've talked about this in the show. So I was double boosted, still got COVID uh, last month, took the Paxlovid, fine. Uh, but then you hear these cases of people taking the Paxlovid, and a week later, 10 days later, they start getting symptoms again. They start testing positive again. And that makes people think, well, is there something wrong with this drug? Yeah. Well, we, we don't understand that phenomenon very much yet. Uh, what, so it's called, it's called rebound. It's not super common. I think it's going to turn out to be less than 5 to 10% of cases, but it's not zero. I've seen a couple of cases like that as well. What probably is true is the drug is so powerful that it may kick in and not give your immune system a chance to sort of rev up against the virus. And so we've got to study this and figure out, should the course of Paxlovid be longer? Uh, you know, Should you wait a day or two before you start? I think all of this is a great unknown. For now, knowing a lot about COVID, there was no doubt in my mind that the benefits of Paxlovid, which decreased the chances of hospitalization and death by 90%, that the benefits far outweigh the risk. But what it does say is if you take Paxlovid and you now are testing negative and you feel fine, if you start feeling crummy again a few days later, go ahead and test yourself again and, 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 and be careful. If you now are testing positive again, you actually are infectious once more. But if the drug doesn't, as, as you said before, rev up your immune system, then does that mean you don't benefit to whatever degree you would benefit by having uh, an antibody response to the virus? Not Probably not. It, it, it's, the drug is attacking the virus directly, sort of independent of your immune system. That's why it works so well, even in people who are immunocompromised. Your immune system is still doing its thing. I mean, it, it, there's every, every uh, indication we have is your immune system still does attack the virus. The fact that you are vaccinated is, is, is extra benefit. Um, and so, but it, it, this is sort of a phenomenon that I'd say we don't fully understand. I, it's not completely kiboshing your immune response to the virus. There's no question about that. But it may be that we've got to sort of modify or, or, or rejigger it to some extent if this turns out to be a common phenomenon. The key thing, first of all, is to study it and understand it better. And second of all, still take the drug because the drug is much, much better than nothing. We're coming up on Memorial Day, inching into summer. Um, how concerned are you or aren't you about travel? You guys did travel together. I think, what, you drove back rather than put an N95 on your yeah, wife we and were, try and fly? <laughs> exactly. We were visiting friends in Palm Springs. And when she tested positive, and it was like, do we get on the plane wearing N95s and being super careful? But now we knew that everybody sitting around her was not going to have a mask on. So that felt wrong and dangerous. And so we rented a car and drove nine hours back to San Francisco. It's a big state. Uh, so <laughs> that's what we chose to do. I think that travel is 
okay. Uh, you know, I think the key is when you're in crowded indoor spaces, you should wear a mask if you can eat outside rather than indoors, uh, particularly in large crowds, you should. And you, everybody's got to sort of, ref and you should be fully vaccinated and boosted. That's the key thing. If I don't get it, and so far I haven't, it's all because I've had four shots. And so, you know, be as safe as you can be. But to say I'm not going to travel Memorial Day, again, I, I, I worry that like what's going to be better next year. And I think if you're going to say, I'm not going to travel, I'm not going to spend time with loved ones, you may be implying that you're not going to do that for the next several years, which just seems like too much of, uh, you know, this virus is going to be around too long and life is too short to do that. Dr. Robert Waxer, professor and chair in Department of Medicine, University of California, San Francisco. So I, I think we have a pretty good understanding on this planet of, of what causes major earthquakes, right? Do we know what causes a Mars quake? Uh, well, what causes quakes in general is, is is forces in the crust that that break the rocks. And on, on Earth, you know, it happens mostly through plate tectonics. You know, the, the plates moving past each other. But there's a lot of uh, quakes on the Earth that happen in the middle of plates. You know, like out in uh, Colorado and, and Texas, uh, in the in the middle of uh, even even the middle of China, we get quakes on on faults. And those just happen because the the the, the, the crust gets either you know, bent, it gets pushed up or pulled apart a little bit. And so there's a lot of stuff that causes quakes. And we think that's what happens on Mars is, is we don't think that there's plate tectonics. We don't see any evidence of plates moving around, but we see places that have been pushed up by, you know, volcanism and, and mantle convection and things like that. And we believe that's what causes most of the quakes. Although it looks like some of the, the quakes that we're seeing are actually caused by uh, the impacts of, of, of meteorites that are hitting the planet, too. Huh. So how do you use the tools you have to, to really try and figure out exactly what is going on under the surface there? Well, the, the, the seismology has been, been developing over the last 100, 120 years, developing ways of taking those wiggles that you see on the seismogram and sort of decoding them and, and figuring out what is, has affected the waves as they go from their source to your seismometer. So, you know, the, the waves travel through the planet. Uh, they get bent by uh, by different layers. They get reflected off layers. Uh, they get polarized. They get, you know, attenuated, which means uh, the, the amplitude gets, gets you know, knocked down by, by absorption. So lots of things happen to waves, and, and seismologists have figured out ways of analyzing those wiggles to figure out, you know, how they've been affected and then being able to tell, you know, what the material that they went through, how what, what it was made out of to, to cause these effects on the waves. So it, it, it can get really complicated, but basically these quakes, the earthquakes on the Earth and Mars quakes on the Mars, they act sort of like a, a little flashbulb that, that illuminates the inside of the Earth and, and the waves from the from the, these quakes bounce off and, and go through things the way light goes through stuff uh, up here at the surface. In our solar system, are the only two planets that we know of uh, that have quakes would be Earth and Mars? Um, those are the only two planets. We actually put seismometers on the moon back uh, during the Apollo program in, in, in the 70s. And so we have, we have a lot of uh, moonquakes. And, and, and like on Mars, they're, they're pretty tiny. But uh, we actually use the moonquakes to, to do the same kind of probing of the inside of the moon. Um, we have, have uh, plans to try to put seismometers on some of the satellites of the outer planets. Uh, there's a uh, uh, a lot of scientists want to put a seismometer on Europa, for example, and NASA has a, a mission under development right now that's going to Titan, which is a, a satellite, a moon of Saturn, 
that is going to have a, a, a little bit simpler seismometer than we have, but one that will see if there's any quakes on, on that planet. I guess there'll be Titan quakes. So many quakes all over the place. Yeah. Um, how is the mission going? And this is inside, right? So, so just so people know, this is not one of the rovers. It's not moving around. This is the lander that, that's stuck. Um, how many more years do you have of doing this? Well, we don't have very much longer at all, we think. We've been going for about three and a half years now, and our our prime mission was was supposed to last two years. So we're already, you know, a year and a half past, you know, what we had, had planned for. Um, but uh, the, our solar panels are getting covered with dust, uh, you know, every day, a little bit more, a little bit more. And we're down to pretty low power levels. And we we think, just, you know, extrapolating forward that, Probably sometime this summer, um, we'll get down to a level where we can't run our, our seismometer anymore. And so at, at that point, um, the batteries will start get, getting depleted, and we might actually uh, you know, uh, lose communication with the landers later this year. So we think we're probably getting close to the end of our mission, unless we get lucky and something like a, a dust devil or a big blast of wind comes along and cleans off our solar panels. So I'm I'm curious. So does the lander when there's this huge quake on Mars do what people do in this a big earthquake here? Does it like call in the middle of the night and go? It tweets. Did you, yeah, <laughs> did, did you feel that, guys? No, no. The, our, our lander is really cool. It just it just measures and says, oh, this will be interesting, and it sends the it sends the data down. You know, the the, the next day with the with the normal mail. So casual. Why, why yeah. can't people do that here? I'll get to it when I get to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, Bruce Bannert, Insights Principal Investigator there at JPL. Bruce, thanks.